Hello and welcome to Manageable Conversations, the podcast where we speak to leaders across industry sectors. In each episode, we discover what helped them in their career, how they stay sharp, and their tips for managers to get the best from their teams. I'm Farley Thomas, the co-founder of Manageable. We hope this podcast inspires you to be a great leader by learning from others. If you listen well, that's the biggest compliment you can ever pay somebody else because the most we can actually give anybody else is our full attention. And also we know psychologically that people do their best thinking when they're being listened to. I think the role of a manager in really listening to your team and understanding them and understanding what their problems are and how you can actually help them is really big. That's Charles Wookie, CEO of A Blueprint for Better Business, a charity that helps businesses to be inspired and guided by purpose that serves society. In this episode, we begin by reflecting on Charles's decision to move on as CEO and the implications for him and his identity as a CEO of a business. Charles shares his own thoughts on identifying where we are in our respective roles and how we should think about moving on before we outlive our own purpose. We also hear from Charles on better forms of management and leadership within organizations in order to get the best out of people and teams. Welcome, Charles. You're standing down as CEO very soon, and I'm curious how that's come about if you're not averse to sharing the background with us today. No, with pleasure. And thank you, Farley, for having this conversation. Having spent most of my career in the voluntary sector, I had seen this thing called founder syndrome, where people set things up, they do good work, and then they stay too long. And they end up undoing some of the good work that they did because they find it hard to leave. And I remember thinking when we started Blueprint, I don't want to be an example of that. And the work's going really well. I mean, the last two or three years particularly have accelerated a lot. But I was determined to, to go when the tide was rising, and when there was momentum and strong momentum behind what we were doing. It's meant that the trustees have been able to have conversations about where the charity should go without my feeling in any sense precious about that. Have you some thoughts about your identity bound up with the charity and with this role, which has a lot of cachet, rightly or wrongly? (laughs) There is that thing about being a CEO. I mean, I I think because I've done lots of other things before and it wasn't a a kind of life quest to do this job. uh, It's something that emerged relatively late in my career as as a possibility. I think I may, for that reason, have been slightly freer of it. But I do recognise that especially for people who've been working and aiming to do this for a very long time in their career, the the sort of sacrifices you have to make to become a leader of a very large organisation in terms of life, work, being the most important thing are huge. And then the job is all consuming. And I think there is a sense of, of your identity in some way being bound up with the role. And I'm sure that's true for me too, to some extent. And in a way, I probably only realised to what extent after I stop. But I, I've also in my life, that's another thing I've seen and perceived the risk of your identity being too closely associated with a role. And for that reason, partly, but also because I just never wanted to devote a huge proportion of my time to any one thing. I mean, for me, I suppose the two sort of counterweights are, first of all, family life. I've got four children and I wanted to spend time with them as they were growing up. Uh, And I'm a pianist and love music. And I've tried to keep that going. And a future in which I'm not a CEO, but see my kids and play the piano and hopefully do other useful things is not a threat to me at all. The world's a big place and and, uh, there's lots of opportunity to bring the experience and thinking that I've gained from running Blueprint into other relationships. And I want to continue to use the thinking. I mean, nobody owns the thinking, but I I find it powerful and obviously also help develop it Uh, and absolutely want to continue to use that. But I don't see any conflict there. 
And if you have the blueprint, it would be fantastic for us to hear what your advice would be to these leaders of very large organizations if they were to think about improving the quality of leadership and management? Well, I mean, and I think what you're doing, Farley, at Manageable is a, you know, a really important part of helping push this along. One way of thinking about this is that we've had these dominant ideas that shape the way in which we think without realising it. And one of them is the thought that businesses are essentially a series of property rights, of a nexus of contracts, And we think of the business in abstract terms, therefore, and in very financial terms and in very legal terms. And then when you think about it, that's a slightly odd place to start, because, as we know, the word company means sharing bread together. Uh, And another starting point is to say, well, a company is first and foremost a collection of people. People come together to achieve something that they can't achieve alone. And then, yes, you have contracts, you have you need capital, you need all sorts of things in order to in order for that endeavour to pursue its purposes in a good way. But it's a completely different starting point. And it also pushes the good of the human person to the front. So you start thinking, well, what impact does this organisation have on people? Any business, it produces goods and services, but it also produces people who are formed or deformed by their experience of going to work every day. And actually, in some ways, the social impact of businesses, I often think, is actually greater just by that than by anything else. So are these are these socially healthy, thriving environments in which people want to participate, in which their humanity is respected. And I'm not just thinking about employees here. I'm also thinking about customers and suppliers and communities, future generations. You know, businesses have impact on the lives of lots of people. And do they think about those impacts? And do they think about how how they can operate in a way that is genuinely life-giving for people and contributing to a broader sense of the common good? And I think what's very exciting to me is the number of young people who are starting businesses who just say, absolutely, that's what I want to do. I want to have a good social purpose behind what we're up to. And I really want to to create an environment where people genuinely feel cared for and valued. What's the gap, do you think, between that point at which it feels as if the way you describe organisations is the norm and where we are today still maybe a little bit trapped in that discourse? In the 10 years since we've been going as Blueprint, I think there really has been a shift. I mean, people ask me when we started, what's success in one line? And I said, success is when the default has changed. And the default at the moment is purpose is to maximise profits. And success will be when the default purpose of most businesses is in some way to benefit society. Now, I don't think we're all the way there, but I certainly think we're not where we were in 2012 when we started out. I think there's been a very significant shift. I think generational change is making a big impact here. I think people coming into leadership roles in in large companies, boards as well now, um, we've seen much more diversity and we're seeing more diversity. And I think think that all helps. Um, And I think the pandemic, paradoxically, tragic and difficult as it's been, has actually been an accelerator of this because I think it's forced companies to think first and foremost about people and safety uh, and looking after their staff, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers. And I think a lot of companies have surprised themselves about how well they've behaved, actually. And a lot of investors have said, look, it's more important that you deal with these urgent issues rather than keep the dividend. And I think there are strong social expectations of companies now, which there weren't, which companies feel the breeze for. Have you in mind or have you come across where changes happen fast or culture has shifted in the right direction far faster than you would have imagined? The single most important thing I would say from our experience is to spend the time in a leadership team to create a shared understanding of what you really want to achieve. 
And so for, for that reason, sometimes when we've gone in, we've stopped companies producing purpose statements. We say, well, why? What's the problem that just this nice statement is going to solve? Then you get into a different conversation about what the unrealized potential is within the business and what actually is necessary in order to change that. But one of the biggest things is a clear shared understanding of what it would mean to become purpose led. What is for us the relationship between purpose and profit? What do we think really motivates our people? Why do they, those who stay, stay? Why do people leave? What are they not having in this business? Why do we have all these mental health issues? Why do people in our middle managers feel frozen? And as a group HR director said at a dinner where we were exploring this, said, well, if they're all frozen, who froze them? And so what is the responsibility for leadership teams in large organizations to create the conditions where people in the middle can do their best work? Because I, I, I basically believe most people turn up wanting to do a good job, but they find all these ridiculous things getting in the way of them doing a good job. And a lot of it is about trying to clear that out of the way. A good analogy actually was used the other day in a CEO dinner we had where people were talking about what had happened during COVID and a lot of systems had to change, a lot of people working from home and essentially a lot of people felt much more empowered. And uh, we had this very good analogy from somebody who said, well, if you imagine like a game of Jenga, if what happened during COVID was we took out some bricks and the structure didn't fall down, well, how many more bricks could we take out that would be even more liberating for people to enable them to feel that they could take responsibility? I think the main thing I would say is that the old ways of change, command and control approaches to this don't work. And in a complex adaptive system, which most large companies are, linear processes are hopeless. And what you need to do is to spend the time to create a shared understanding and then experiment and pattern spot and find areas of brilliant practice, which there will be usually in a large organisation where somebody, because somebody didn't notice, has actually done something brilliant. And to be very, very focused on the really good and to try and understand and be very curious about why that has happened and enable and give permission to people to do things differently and also not to rush, because I think that's a, another pervasive problem is, you know, it's 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 um, action addiction. And also, can we please do all this in six months? And it's nuts. This I mean, the culture stuff, as you know, better than I, takes years and there's no shortcut to that. Because you are dealing with ingrained habits, you're dealing with processes, you're dealing with structures, and things often snap back, particularly when things get difficult. If we focus on one node or one agent in the complex adaptive system that you re referenced, if we picture that node or that agent as a manager of a team, what would you look for? I would say the job of a manager is to be a coach. So it's essentially to support other people to do their best work and to feel that they can thrive. So to create the conditions in which other people can thrive and enjoy their work and therefore give of their best to the organisation. And that's easy to say, but not so easy to do. I think, first of all, it's about hiring good people, actually. I mean, it's just maybe sometimes overlooked. I think it's also really good to try and hire people better, better than you who, are, who, who will really challenge and contribute, but not in a way that's destructive. And then this point about psychological safety within a team to create the conditions in which people can say what they think. And often in my work with CEOs, I say, does your team, do people say what they think? And they say, well, of course they do. And I say, well, how do you know? And they say, well, I say what I think. And I say, well, of course you do. You're the CEO. How do you know they say what they think? Because you've got all the power. It's not obvious how you know whether people are really being honest with you. A good manager, I think, will really listen hard. If you listen well, that's the biggest compliment you can ever pay somebody else because the most we can actually give anybody else is our full attention. And also we know psychologically that people do their best thinking when they're being listened to. 
I think the role of a manager in really listening to your team and understanding them and understanding what their problems are and how you can actually help them um, is really big. And I think a lot of people leave organisations, not because of the purpose of the organisation or the senior team, but because of their manager. And I think a lot of it is about, am I, am I cared for? Does this person really understand me and my issues in doing what they want me to do? And am I supported? Am I equipped? Have I got what I need in order to do this? And is it clear what I'm being asked to do? And is it in any way relevant to the organisation? And has my manager explained that? I don't think this complicated. It's just, it's not, I mean, it's, that, those are the sorts of things I think I would, I would look for. It's easy to say this in a way, but I think businesses are full of tension all the time because you've got these targets, you've got things you have to achieve, and often there are conflicts around some of that. And I think wishing those away is, is just unrealistic. It's naive. And so I think part of the art is to hold tension in a way which is creative rather than emotionally debilitating. And that's very difficult, actually, to do that well. But I've seen that done well, and it makes a hell of a difference because people then get galvanised around the change that they know they need to make rather than get emotionally fret by the reality of the gap between where they know they need to be and where they are now. I'm curious how you, yourself, have handled some of these tensions or cope with the stress and challenge of management. Well, I mean, I've learned. I mean, I, I think I was terrible really at managing in my younger days I mean because I'm one of these people who's quite good at achieving by themselves and I wasn't at all good at moving to achieving through other people I didn't cut my teeth in an organization where I learned how to manage well I mean in a blueprint I mean we've had good robust discussions and sometimes real tensions over I mean an, an example of the latter would be over the Black Lives Matter George Floyd murder where the team was saying we should be out there what are we saying what are we doing and I kind of dragged my feet and I wasn't and that was partly because I felt very uncomfortable about the issue. I didn't know how to deal with it myself. My psychological reaction to that was delay and that annoyed people. And I think they were right to be annoyed with me and challenged. Yeah, very challenging. So I kind of learned from that. And what the learning was to own at an early stage that feeling of discomfort, which I didn't do. I think I should have done that and just say to the team what I just said to you now rather than sit with it and then what we did later which we should have done earlier is ask for help there are awful usually people who will help you but you need to ask uh, my approach now really is is to try and be facilitative as a leader and to try and create the space and very much seek consensus within the team Charles a final question if I may is there a way of discerning when you ought to move on and, and, and allow space for someone else well, I, I mean, one of the images that I found helpful is in, is in Charles Handy's book, one of his books, which is the kind of S on its side. And the, and the business is thriving or doing really well. All that investment has paid off. But you then are going to hit a peak and it will come back down the other side. And at organisational level, the time to start the new S is at the point at which you're up, but not over the hump from the investment that you made before. And I think probably it's true that all careers and roles have a have that kind of cycle to them in a way. You know, you start a role, you've got to learn how to do it really well. Maybe that's quite quick, but you're a bit of induction and then you're flying and then you're moving and then you're doing what you wanted to do. And sometimes there's the opportunity over, you know, to recycle that with the same person in an expanded role. I'm wary of generalising, but I do think there's a rhythm to these things. So a good question to ask is where where am I? You know, where am I now? Am I just, are we just really getting going? Actually, for my heart of hearts, do I think we may be getting near that plateau at the top? And if so, am I going to renew? Is the organisation going to renew? 
Should I be thinking about going somewhere else? And also, I think being honest and being able to distinguish between my agenda and my own career and what's best for me and the organisation and what the organisation actually needs and to what extent I've been able to contribute what I can through who I am and in the role I've had. And it maybe needs somebody who brings something slightly different uh, now to do something else, which isn't in any way a criticism. It's just to recognise that these are all, in a way, life processes and they're always emergent and they're always dynamic. I might try that out, Charles. And I look forward to following your uh, movement along the next (laughs) S in the Wookiee book. Thank you so much. Well, it's a great pleasure, Farley, and I look forward to continuing our collaboration together. If you enjoyed this manageable conversation, there are many other perspectives we offer our community of managers worldwide who coach and individuals from all walks of life who benefit from being coached. That's all from me. I'm Farley Thomas. Until next time.